outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today I'm joined by my pal Spencer Newharth and Tony Peterson to break down their one week in November hunts, getting the best of the best of the decisions made, the mistakes along the way, and what led to their success. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today in the show, we are talking about rut hunting success. Last week, you got to hear about rut hunting failure. Today, you get to hear about the successful side of things. You get to hear about the the smiles and the cheers and the high fives and the hugs and, and all the good stuff that you hope to get at this time of year. And uh, with me, I've got the rest of the cast from our new show coming out on the Meat Eater YouTube channel this week called One Week in November. So in addition to me, that is Clay Newcomb, Tony Peterson, and Spencer Newharth. Uh, Clay is is standing us up at the moment for reasons undisclosed. So it's it's just Spencer, Tony, and me, but maybe Clay will join us later. We're going to cross our fingers. Uh, real quick, uh, Tony and or Spencer, how do we feel about Clay standing us up right now? He's such a diva, man. <laughs> do you yeah, think it's because we're not paying him enough? Yeah. Yeah, he better have a good reason. He better like uh, have his Vortex binos right now on a, some big giant nebraska buck i hope that's the case although he already killed one so i well, think he's tagged out <laughs> someone else in camp has not killed one so i hope he's he's helping that person look there you one. go there you go that's that's a good point uh so guys here's what i want to do and you tell me what you think about it um I want to walk through basically, you know, anyone's listening now, maybe heard last week's episode in which I walked through my week in Iowa. But while I was out there having a struggle fest in Iowa, you guys and Clay were killing it across Minnesota, Wisconsin, Montana, Wyoming, and Oklahoma. So I want to walk through day by day what you guys did, what you were thinking about, the different kind of strategies that worked for you during the rut. Um, anything like that I think would be helpful. And then we can kind of bounce around between each other and you know, see what kind of curiosities we have and dive into whatever wormholes present themselves. Um, but that's my high level. You guys, though, are, you know, 
you guys host podcasts here on Wired Hunt too. So if you have a better idea partway through or at any point, you're welcome to jump in and say, this is stupid. Let's do something else. And I'll, I'll entertain it. <laughs> <laughs> so Spencer, do you want to kick us off with your game plan leading into this week? Uh, we haven't gotten to a lot of detail. You've kind of alluded to things throughout and you talked a little bit about this letter deal, but do you want to set us up how your week was planned out how you were feeling about things heading into it what your game plan was yeah my my plan was to try to fill a montana general deer tag and a special draw whitetail tag in wyoming and this this wasn't necessarily related to the series i would have done this either way but in the summer i sent out 112 letters seeking deer hunting permission in montana Um, And I'll I'll reveal those results more and and talk about sort of what my strategy was and what worked and what didn't work and things like that in an article at some point. Um, But to to give you a quick synopsis of it, I got like six yeses. Um, I would identify like four of those as B minus properties that were either small or they had a lot of other shared permission um, or they were like in the opposite corner of the state from me. So, so not really ideal. Um, so like four B minus properties. And then one that I would say was like a B plus, but the landowner actually ended up selling it between the time me getting permission and, uh, the fall actually getting here. And then the six property being a total a plus, it was over a thousand acres. Um, great habitat hadn't been hunted in a long time. Um, and it was going to have a mix of whitetails and mule deer. So that that I was thrilled about. And I had scouted it leading up to what was our opening day, which was November 1 for the show. Um, and there was a buck, like a mature buck that I had identified on the property that was being pretty consistent, um, who in, in twice scouting I had within 200 yards and, and could have killed with my rifle, but but chose not to for the sake of the show. And, and that was my strategy for Montana. For Wyoming, it was sort of similar. I hunted there last year, um, and I ended up getting a lot of door-knocking permission. So as soon as I filled in Montana, I was going to drop down to Wyoming. In Montana, on day one, it was pretty slow for me. I set up um, with hunts that I thought were going to help me kill that buck, but I never saw him in the morning or the evening. I didn't see him at all the first two days. And so... Uh, the, the first day had a lot of action for me in both the morning hunt and the evening hunt, but no mature bucks and not the buck that I was looking for. Can you, can you elaborate a little bit on like what that setup looked like and, and why you were there on that first morning? You know, it's river bottom stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of uh, hardwood trees and river bottom and CRP and slewy area yeah. And, and the reason that I was there, and this is something that um, when the show comes out, my setups are going to look very different than your guys's. And I think one of the the biggest spots where, where mine is different besides I'm on the ground and you guys are in a tree is that any wise bow hunter like you two know that you don't set up to see deer necessarily. You set up to kill a deer. And so I'm, I'm guessing um, having not seen like the the places you were in that a lot of times you guys were hunting areas that maybe had visibility of like 30 yards, uh, maybe 50 yards in a good spot, but probably some spots that only had like 20 yard visibility areas. I was set up so I could see hundreds and hundreds of yards um, at a time. And I, I did want to see deer so then I can then close the distance and make something happen. So 
the the reason that I would set up on day one and, and day two where I did was to just get like maximum visibility of an area. And if there was a buck that I would identify that I wanted to go after, I would try to close the distance from there. So that's, I think, going to be one of the biggest like uh, differences between my setup and the three setups that you guys have throughout the whole week. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that stood out to me when I was kind of hearing about what you were doing was how you kind of looked at your morning hunts as almost throwaways. Like you didn't have much confidence at all. You kind of felt, well, I'm going to be out there for an hour and then it'll be done. And you were really resting your hopes on evenings. Why, mm-hmm. why was that? I mean, so much of so many other places, when we talk about the rut, we always think the mornings are the best. Why was your situation unique? Part, part of that reason is the, the property, um, didn't set up great to uh, like catch a lot of morning movement. You would you'd get a lot of movement sort of on the fringe of the property where they would spend a lot of like the their shooting light on the neighbor's ground or something like that. And then to to have a good morning movement, you would ideally want to be in the timber somewhere, um, which with a rifle isn't always ideal. Um, and and there wasn't a lot on like either any of the places that I hunted Montana or Wyoming. That would really funnel movement, which is like something that you're sort of hoping for in the morning to, to catch a cruising bucket. Like 10 a.m., you're not going to be on a field edge, really. You're going to be on some ridge line or something like that. And these properties just didn't have a lot of stuff that would funnel movement that would make me confident that I'm going to catch some buck going back to his bed. Okay. So morning one was slow. I mean, you saw a bunch of deer, but not a shooter. What mm-hmm. about the evening? Did you go back to the same spot? The evening I went back to a very similar spot and uh, same thing again. I probably saw every single deer that I had seen that same morning and every single buck that I had seen in like my three or four days of scouting except for the buck, um, which sort of brought with it a little bit of that rut anxiety where you're like, did did some hot doe show up? Did this thing wander into the next county already? Like, is, is it already too late? Um, so, so day one, I had seen many of the same deer that I was familiar with from my short time scouting, except for that deer. Okay. So day one, you're feeling kind of a little apprehension. They might've disappeared, but you weren't down in the dumps, right? No, not, not down in the dumps. Um, mostly I was considered about, I, I was concerned about my lack of like quality morning hunts that were going to be with me. I thought throughout the whole week, like, uh, if, if my evening setups were like a nine out of 10, my mornings were like a, a six out of 10. And so I was mostly concerned about not ruining things in the morning for my evening hunts. So just like a tiny bit of pessimism. Um, but I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't concerned quite yet after day one. Yeah. Now, what about this whole lodging situation? Uh, this needs to be brought up because you were giving me shit about <laughs> staying in a hotel and Tony was in there Airbnb and Clay was like a resort yep. or something. Um, <laughs> and you're like, I'm staying in a tent. But you were yeah. in a tent in the yard of an Airbnb that you got to use. So what, what was this? So the Airbnb was some rancher who had a sod house that he refinished. Um, and it only had one room, which the cameraman stayed in. So then I, I pitched my tent in the yard. Now, here's what, what won't show up on the show. Um, we were sort of the first guests to stay there when it was ever cold out. And so what we learned and what we were the first to learn was that the place was just littered with mice. Like that very <laughs> first night when it got chilly, uh, the cameraman said that he thought like he was in 
the movie Ratatouille. Like it was, it was just <laughs> wild. Uh, he said he could hear mice in the ceiling. He could hear them on the floor. Um, he could like see them through the, the cracks in the wall where like moonlight was coming through and they would scurry by real fast. Um, so even even the cameraman staying in some ranchers Airbnb sod house uh, was not living in luxury. So I, I say to my tent, I was probably That's awesome. more comfortable than him even. So so with that said, then let's let's pivot to Tony's day one. Uh, Tony, this will be a quick story unless we really get a lot of backstory. So um, give me <laughs> give me the lead up to the Minnesota hunt and why you were going to start in Minnesota and and how you were feeling about stuff leading into that first day. Oh man. So I've talked on this podcast a lot about Minnesota's early, early gun season. And so I knew uh, when, when we were talking about filming for a week, I'm like, if I'm going to kill in Minnesota for this project, it's going to be like uh, maybe two days of my time. And then I'm going to go down to Wisconsin because I wasn't going to push it any later because of the gun season opening up in Minnesota. And so I ended up, I've got a permission on a farm in Southeastern Minnesota I've hunted since I was like 15 years old. And then a buddy of mine, a really good buddy of mine, uh, he's got permission on the land next to it. And so I've got him permission to hunt my side of things. And he, this year gave me permission to hunt his side or got me permission to hunt it. So we're like, let's just team up and hang some stands in the summer that we think are going to be like bang and rut spots. And that's what we did. I, I drove down there and I think it was maybe the end of July. And we picked a few areas where, you know, from past observation and some winter scouting. And, you know, we, we knew that we'd probably be on top of bucks, but I, I really, I had two stands, one on his place, one on my place that I was like, okay, these are kind of it. And the one on my place was, it had me real excited for how it's set up. But the problem was none of the corn was picked on either property and the wind was dead wrong for that stand. And so I ended up having to go to a backup spot, which was the other spot that we set up together. And it was a good, I, I knew it would be good. I didn't think it'd be as, I didn't think it'd treat me as well as it did, but I was kind of bummed the first morning. Cause I was, I was desperate to make that other spot work, but I just knew, you know, bringing a cameraman along and having to hang a stand and having two people in a tree and a wind that's just, there's no way around it. It was not going to work very well that you know, we're going to the backup spot. And I was thinking, you know, walking in there, we jump some deer in the cornfield in the dark and everybody's, everybody's listening's probably had that experience at one point or another. And then to get on that stand and set up super early, we kind of pulled a Mark Kenyon and got out there way early. Um, you know, by the time the sun <laughs> was rising, I was watching coyotes chase a buck away from us and it was cold. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know how long we're going to make this. Like I'm cold and my cameraman was shivering and it just ended up that we were in a, we were on a wood line, uh, kind of a little drainage through through this cornfield that sort of forms like a uh, almost a turkey foot pattern. There's there is just these little veins of cover through this unpicked cornfield, and it just feeds bucks from one spot to the next. And so, even though I knew it was like you know Spencer mentioned, you know these tight spots that we we sit in when we bow hunt, this was as tight as it comes. Like I knew they were going to show up fast and it was not going to be great TV, but it could be a spot to kill a, a good buck. And honestly, going into that part of my hunt, I was like, if a hundred incher comes by, he's toast. Like I'm not, I'm not going to be picky with two days to work with. And just so happens that the, the first buck that came in was out of his mind and he was a big one. 
So before you tell us what happened with the big one, I got to know what the spot is that you really felt good about. Because this spot worked out pretty good. What was the setup that you were dying to be in instead of this one? Um, You know, it was only a couple hundred yards away from where I killed this buck, but it was, it, it's got a creek bottom in it. So there's, there's deer that feed in from the main part of the farm that I've been hunting forever. And then it's not very far away from this 80 acres. That's kind of a sanctuary. These guys own it and they, uh, they don't really hunt it much. They hunt it during gun season and they're, they're big buck guys. And so the deer on the neighboring properties, they tend to get pushed into that property and this stand where that I hung is, is not that far away. And the deer that naturally come and go from that property, they go through this area. And so it's just a, a hard to access spot that you're kind of playing off the pressure from the neighboring properties for, you know, at that point in the season, like six weeks of, of bow pressure. And then because of the, the gun season opening up on, you know, it was the sixth or seventh this year you tend to get this sort of influx of guys who are going in to check their stands and, you know, checking their trails in and out. So you, you just have this added pressure of people coming in. And so that 80 becomes just kind of this hub of activity because nobody's going in there to hunt. And so those deer come in and they go out and, you know, it played off of water. It played off a lot of that stuff. And so I was really excited. I, I sat there one day during the rut last year and I saw, I can't remember, 14 or 17 deer or something. And it was on and I wanted to get there in the worst way. It just, you know, I, I, I couldn't justify it with that wind direction. Yeah. So back to the spot that you did sit, it's this turkey foot of timber in the middle of a standing cornfield. Uh, other than it being just like that perfect tight kind of pinch, was there any other reason why it ended up working? Was there anything else to it that made it, uh, made it worthwhile for that buck to come cruising through? And how, how tight uh, was it, Tony? You said that this was like as tight as it gets. How tight was it? Tight. I mean, it, you it asked the post-production team <laughs> how happy they were with the footage because I, I got asked about three times, like, okay, is this it? Like, is there, there's no more footage? I'm like, no, no. What you see <laughs> in the show when this drops, it, it's like a, the, the encounter with that buck was maybe five or six seconds total. And all the encounter I mean, it, is just Tony saying, Matt, 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 yeah. Matt, Matt. <laughs> this dude, yeah. And this dude came in hot and he had, he had some corn stalks in his antlers and he, I think he had lost a doe. I think he'd been running hard and I think she gave him the slip and he was out of his mind. Cause we, you know, where he came in and where I shot him, a deer that age in that area should be looking up going, no way, boys. And he should have been gone. But he, I couldn't get him to pick his head up. I couldn't get him to stop. And he was 15 yards away. And so it was just one of those dreamy situations where you've got a buck that's just, he's got one thing on his mind and he is not clued into anything else. And so that spot, it just, it was that kind of thing. Like it, you weren't going to see him coming. You know, but they they were going to cruise those wooded those little wood lines. I think he was, you know, he was on the upwind side of a of kind of a nasty little thicket. So I think he was looking for does in there too. But I really think that that buck had just been covering ground, had been chasing, lost a doe, and he's like, maybe she came down here because he looked like a deer that was frantic. You know, it's kind of like if you have a, like a high drive bird dog, and they can't find. You know, you toss a bumper into the into the you know waist high grass and they can't find it, but they're, they're super excited. Like that kind of just like jittery body language. Like, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? He like, he, he was kind of projecting that it was wild, man. That's awesome. So 
for people that haven't seen the pictures yet or haven't watched the episode, which by the time this is out, you should be able to watch it on the Mediator YouTube channel. But for those who haven't seen it, can you give us uh, a visual picture of him? Uh, he's a, a bigger eight pointer than I ever thought I'd kill in my life. Uh, he, I didn't know when he came running in, it was kind of one of those deals where you just, the first glimpse you get, you're like, Oh God, I gotta get my bow in my hand now. And he came in and I, I tried to murp him to stop him a bunch of times. And he just, I think he just stopped naturally. I shot him and he ran off and I knew that I knew the shot was really good, but it was one of those encounters where I didn't, you know, I didn't have an adrenaline dump until after, as soon as he ran away, it was like, it, it was incredible. And, you know, we, of course, when you're filming, you got to film some stuff after the shot. And so I'm like, I want to go see him so bad. Cause I knew he was a good one. I was thinking like 140 when he ran off and then walking up to him, you know, I, I killed a buck in Minnesota, I think two years ago in a clean eight pointer that went 143. I didn't think I'd ever top that. And this buck, I started looking at him. I'm like, man, he seems like he's a lot bigger than that last buck. And, you know, we got home and a sidebar to this is my buddy, Eric, who I was hunting with, he had killed a buck there the night before that was an eight pointer that went 119. It was a beautiful deer. And we, we had both of those bucks in the back of his truck and his looked like a baby deer compared to this one. I mean, it was just incredible. The body size and the mass, it was just, it was, it was, I was so lucky. I got so freaking lucky with that buck. After you killed that buck, you sent a text saying that you just killed a toad. Um, and had it been like me or clay or Mark that said they killed the toad, I'd be like, okay, uh, awesome. Like 140 inch five by five. Um, but when, when you said a toad, for some reason I put greater stock into that. I was like, oh man, <laughs> this, this must like genuinely be a giant buck and, uh, was not disappointed when the photos came through. Yeah. He's, he's a good one. I'm not sure I'd take that comment, Spencer, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm putting me and clay in the same boat there. I'd be like, all right, awesome. They killed like a 140 inch five by five. Uh, but it, it, when, when Tony said it, it felt like it carried a little more weight. I was like, all right, this, this is a toad that he killed. Yeah. And especially because Tony was talking about originally shooting like a little hundred inch eight point or something, you know, <laughs> that's right. Ah, yeah, I, I had a range on that part of the hunt for sure. Man. Oh man. You pulled it off, sir. Well done. Well done. Thank you. Um, so then for you from there, Tony, you were just recovering the buck, processing the buck, putting things away, getting all set up, and then you were going to move to this other Wisconsin place for day two, right? Yeah. So we, you know, I killed him pretty early, but getting him out was a little bit of a process. And then because my buddy had killed, we had two deer to butcher. And so we started, I can't remember when we started on those deer. It was like one o'clock and we didn't wrap up till like eight o'clock at night. I mean, it was, you know, just he and I on those two big bucks, it took a long, long time, but that was, you know, I had to do that, you know, CWD regulations, all that stuff. And so, you know, it, it, it was a process, but then it was like, okay, well now we get a good night's sleep and tomorrow we're heading to Southwestern Wisconsin. It was, it was a great, the way it worked out was amazing. I, I couldn't be happier with it. So real quick before we move on to the next day entirely, I got to ask you guys what you thought about what I did on day one. I passed like a 120 something inch nine pointer that looked like a three and a half year old. And then another buck that probably was, again, I believe he was three and a half, but he was tall and tight. I mean, he was like 130 something probably. Um, 
when I did that within the first like hour and a half of the first day, were you guys like on board? Were like, okay, Mark, good call, or were you sitting there thinking I'm an idiot? <laughs> Go ahead, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've told you guys this before. Like, there's there's not a 130 inch deer around me that's safe. But I've also never hunted a place like Iowa to sort of <clears throat> be put in uh, that situation to to know that like, oh yeah, the, the there's much better bucks behind these trees. So uh, I, I don't blame you one bit. You were in Iowa. It was day one. I think you would have regretted it the rest of the day, the rest of the week, uh, the the rest of the fall. If you would have done it, you would have been wondering. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, you, you get the opportunities later. So I think you... Uh, you made a fine decision and, and Tony happened to kill one on day one. So I feel like, uh, like when one kill, we all kill. And, uh, that, that's at least how I felt about it. So I was, I was stoked. Like when, when Tony killed that buck, it felt like, uh, for some stupid reason, I was part of it despite, uh, being thousands of miles away. It hadn't having nothing to do with that deer. Um, so it wasn't like, uh, we were in like a real dry spell either, where it was like, man, we need some action or we, we like, uh, she gets something on the ground. So I, I don't, I don't think you made the wrong decision at all. Um, but if, if I were in that situation, I had 130 inch buck at uh, 20 yards. I, I don't know that it would have survived. Yeah. Tony. I I thought you should have lit him up, Mark. <laughs> of course you did. I, so, well, for a couple of reasons, that's a great deer. First off, it, Iowa, no Iowa, whatever. That's like, that's no slouch, right? I get, I totally get why you passed him up. It was early, but when I, when I look at that and I think about, you know, let me put it this way. The average person in the audience looks at that and they think, okay, you got like a a week in Iowa, you know, you're obviously on to something. If you have a first morning like that, that's, that's a great start. I would look at that a little differently and be like, you know, you're going to be towing a cameraman around for a week. You're going to have a lot of different, different types of encounters than if you were doing it just on your own. And man, that's, that's a great deer to have that close and when you're doing a project like this i was when you sent me that i was like i don't know man i think probably (laughs) arrows should have been flying but you know you make those decisions in the moment and i get why you didn't but that deer would have 100 percent got shot at if it if i was there yeah yeah i definitely was waffling on it i was i mean in the video like they didn't even show the second one they only show one of them uh but it's like ah i don't know no yeah maybe uh i don't know no yeah no i go back and forth like 15 times and i just i just couldn't bring myself to it it was more like i wasn't even thinking about the production i was just thinking about i've waited six years to hunt iowa I want to enjoy the damn thing, you know? I would totally be bummed yeah. not knowing what might have been possible or what I might have seen or, like, what the show might have been, you know? You go to Iowa and you see bucks fighting and you see bucks chasing and you see big deer and, like, I, I you know, I just, I wanted to see the thing. Um, so, from that perspective, I, I feel good about the decision you know, at, the, at the moment. Would I have loved to have killed that deer on day six or seven? Yeah. Um, but, you know, it is what it is, so... That one, uh, you know, can't take that one back. So, Spencer, what about day two? Move us to day two. What was your what was your setup going into that morning and your thought process? Day two, I decided to dive into the timber in the morning and just go in and blind from <clears throat> what I thought on Onyx looked like a good like funnel for deer movement. Um, I, I went into in the dark and didn't see a single deer that morning. Um, which, which was a bummer that was sort of, uh, 
that was sort of the beginning of my pessimism. Like, damn it. Um, if, if my morning hunts are going to be like this and, uh, you know, I only have like <clears throat> seven of these evenings in reality, I don't know that I talked about this on the show, but they were going to be moving cattle on the property on November 4th. So I felt like I only had like three days. I could have hunted beyond that. Um, but it was going to kind of shuffle the deck beyond that third day of hunting for me. And so when the morning was just like totally slow and saw zero deer, um, that, that was a bummer for me that evening though, I had the right wind to hunt what I considered like position a on the property. Um, I knew I would see deer. I knew I would see bucks. I knew it was a place where I would see a mix of whitetails and muleys. And despite me telling you otherwise, Mark, I was fully prepared to shoot a mule deer. <laughs> if one showed up, there, there was some dialogue before the show about like, oh, what, what should I do if uh, a mule deer shows up? And I think how I had left it was uh, telling you, Mark, like, yeah, I don't think I'll, I will, I won't shoot one if one shows up, but I was fully ready to shoot one. It wouldn't yeah, even been like, despite it, me being very clear <laughs> that you shouldn't, <laughs> it, it wouldn't even been like a decision to make. It'd been like, yeah, I'm going to shoot this thing. There, there'd have been no waffling that would have happened if, uh, if a big mule deer would have showed up. So anyway, on, on the, the second night of the haunt, I was in position a, um, and I had some good action. I think I probably saw 20 some deer that night, a, a mixed bag of muleys and whitetails, um, a, a good like buck to doe ratio. Um, but I didn't see anything that like was beyond a basket rack, which was, which was disappointing. And that was my day too. But <clears throat> something that sort of like turned the whole thing around was on the morning of day two, on my way out of the woods, I wanted to learn more about the place since I had sort of like uh, accepted that, yeah, I'm going to have to just like kind of blindly haunt this timber in the mornings going forward. I found a scrape taking the scenic route from um, where I was hunting that morning to the pickup. And I actually found a little cluster of scrapes there. And for me hunting in the West, I feel like I, I'm, I'm rarely coming across like really good, obvious sign um, just because I, I feel like the deer like you sign making a little bit differently out here. I'm also hunting a lot of landscapes that are like very scarred by cattle. And so trails aren't always obvious. And even if you have like what you think is a buck rub, it could be a porcupine that's chewing on the tree, or it could be where cattle like to rub their backs. And, uh, you don't just like find a lot of scrapes, even though for you guys, you probably could have started Mark in like, uh, Sioux city, Iowa and, and taking a rock and throwing it from scrape to scrape and made it all the way to like Illinois. That's just like how common scrapes are in your area for me. They're not. And so when I saw that scrape, I, I dropped a pin on Onyx. It was also only about 50 yards from a water crossing, which you've written about before in Mark in articles, Mark, how like water crossings are sort of a, a terrain feature. You can hunt from mm -hmm. Maine to Montana. It's just something that works and any idiot can go somewhere and identify like a spot where deer are crossing a creek or a ditch or or some water feature like that so what i had found that morning was a water crossing yeah. as well as a cluster of scrapes within like 50 yards of each other and that was sort of what informed my hunt for day three which ended up being successful now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal 
Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. All right, so then what about you, Tony, for day two? Did you end up getting to Wisconsin and ready to hunt? I can't remember if you did hunt that day or if you were still kind of in transit. No, no, no. We got, we got down there and I had a couple stands, you know, this was a, this, this property that I'm hunting, my buddy bought it, uh, last winter, actually last spring. And so I had spent a little bit of time turkey hunting, a little bit time scouting it this summer. And then we did one big stand hanging mission in preparation for this. And one of the places that we hung a stand was this, uh, it looked like just an amazing crossing at the point of this valley where, um, you know, the deer kind of had to go around some of these really deep washouts. And there was a series of them. There's actually three of them in a row. And so when you're talking like a, a, a rut spot, I just, I I've been thinking about this spot since we found it in Turkey season, since we set up a stand there this summer. And so on the second day after driving down there, uh, went into that spot, got set up and literally like two minutes after I got in stand, two does ran up and a buck chased him right through the crossing, a little guy. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is it. This is going to be on. And that place just proved to be a scrapper fest. (laughs) And for some reason I couldn't buy a sighting of a deer bigger than a year and a half old, but that's, that's where I ended up the first, or I should say the second night of this hunt, the first night of uh, my Wisconsin part of the hunt. And and this was the farm where you actually thought you'd have a chance at a big one, right? Minnesota was where you thought you'd shoot the scrapper, and Wisconsin was where you thought the big boys would be, right? Yeah, I I had pretty high hopes for this property. You know, it's it's bluffy stuff, real close to the Mississippi River. It's the kind of stuff that I grew up hunting, and I just I love it so much. And because of those, you know that that serious up and down along the river. 
I just don't think, I think you get a really good age class there because it's impossible to just drive out. There's, there's, there's too many places, too many big valleys and stuff that, that deer can hide on. And from my summer scouting and then some of my, my trail camera work, I, you know, I knew there were really good deer down there. So what's like the name of the game for you when it comes to rut hunting that bluffy terrain? Uh, is it is it just really using those terrain features to funnel movement and just counting on that to eventually bring one by you? Or if you had to oversimplify your general thought process going into that portion of the hunt, what was it? So in, in that stuff, it's always terrain. I mean, it, I think, you know, because I, I hunt, if you were to look at where I hunt in northern Wisconsin, a lot of times it's really flat. And it's so much more difficult to find a good pinch point or a, a funnel. And then you start getting into those hills, those bluffs along the river, and they're just tailor-made for, you know, pushing deer travel a certain way. And so I, I probably went into that too cocky because I I found those spots this this summer with my buddy and I was like, oh man, this is, it's over. And what I didn't factor in was, you know, it's the first year on this, this ground, you're going to learn a bunch of stuff. And so that spot and another spot, which we'll get into later, where I spent a bunch of time on this pond, I kind of thought looking at them and reading the sign, I'm like, okay, I know how the deer use this. Well, you guys know how it is. Then you get in there and you actually observe deer and they cross a bunch of different ways and they travel and they they don't come from the same spots you think they will. And it's just a, a crash course on how the deer use the land. And so my my setup was those you know, those specific terrain features, but I got a really good education in the, the six days I spent on that farm because they didn't use it the way I, I thought I had it figured out. I didn't. So walk me through then what you found out on day three, you sat there that first day, next day you get in there, did you go back to the same place or do you scout to find a new location or what? I went right back to the same stand. I had a, I had that pond stand, you know, the, the forecast for that week where I was started out pretty cold and was just progressively supposed to get warmer throughout the week and the winds were going to shift. And so I knew I was going to be dealing with some different winds and some, some temperatures getting up into the sixties by the end of the week. And so even though I really wanted to go to the bottom of this Valley where I had to stand along this pond, I just, I knew every day that I put it off would be better. And so I went right back to the crossing stuff for the second day. And it was kind of a repeat of the first afternoon. It was a lot of, uh, not a lot. It was it was some young bucks cruising through and some does, but just nothing, nothing where I was like, man, I, I feel like I'm on them now. It just it felt just okay. What was the corn situation for you there, Tony? I know you said it wasn't ideal in Minnesota. What about around that spot in Wisconsin? Um, I didn't have any corn anywhere near me. I had corn about three quarters of a mile away. And I do think, I I actually do think that soaked up some of the deer, um, but it was really a non-factor for my, my Wisconsin hunt. And what about you, Mark? I know you had said at one point that there was some corn being cut. Um, but was that like at the end of harvest was at the beginning of harvest there? What was going on in Iowa? Yeah, it was actually standing corn almost everywhere I hunted. Um, and um, I would bet you like four out of the seven days, maybe five out of the seven days, there was corn being picked somewhere around me. Um, so I hunted two properties, one that I had got knock on door permission on another one. I got permission through a buddy and um, golly, the first one, they picked like a small subsidiary field next to where I hunted on the first day. But then there was like 
500 acres of corn and they covered all the rest of the property all the way till I was done there. That never got taken out by the time I was out. And then the other farm I was hunting, they had picked like kind of an outside row and then left everything else until day three. And then on day three, they picked a bunch of the rest. And that was that one day, Tony, where I texted you guys and like, I meditated and I'm moving to the cut corn. There's gotta be does out there. And there ended up not being shit. Um, so yeah, there was, there was just, there was a lot of corn. And then the very last day I had a, excuse me, I had a little standing cornfield behind me and that was standing all day. And then the last like two hours of daylight, the farmer came in and picked that and ended up picking, you know, all the way combine all the way till the very end of the day and like, and wrapped up like the last five minutes of daylight. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a long way to weigh and say there was a lot of standing corn. There was a lot of combining, uh, didn't end up helping me in the ways I thought. I thought I'd be able to get on some of that fresh combine corn and have a flood of does come out there and it'd be hot. That never happened for me. Um, it certainly could have when there was corn standing in those locations. It certainly could have, like Tony said, it could have soaked up some of those deer and hidden some of those deer out of my view. I'm sure it did. Um, how much? I don't know. Question for you, Tony. Um, flipping it around here. One of the things that I found myself, and like every year during the rut, I have this debate internally. I'm sure most of us do in some way. I'm just curious how you how you think about this after this past week. There's this there's these two options I feel like we often have during the rut. One thing is like this temptation to want to find the hot sign, find the action. Like where are they right now? Where's the hot right now? If, if you're sitting out there somewhere and it's not happening, there's this temptation. Like you got to go find it. You got to get out there. So part of me was saying, I got to scout more. I need to search more. I've got to go get on these deer where they are now. Because as you guys know, I had a long spell during the middle of my trip where it was really, really deathly slow. Um, but then I had this other temptation or other thought, which was, man, if you have confidence in a feature, in, in a spot, because it has certain things that just do work, like they, they, they're timeless when it comes to the rut. If you have a spot like that, sometimes you have to give it time. You have to soak in that spot to let the good thing finally happen, right? I mean, if I hunt the best funnel in the world and it doesn't happen the first morning, you know, a big buck might come through the next morning just fine and never know, you know, it would have never known I was there the whole day prior, but the next day here he comes. And if I had moved on to the next spot, cause I was impatient, I never would have, you know, enjoyed that opportunity. So the whole week I was bouncing between those two things, like sit in a spot, give it time because I believe in it or search out the new place. And, and I was constantly going back and forth and back and forth. And so there was a couple places where I did give time. And then there was a couple times when I was like, I got to pull out, I got to find something new and scout and all that. But that was like the theme of my week was that tension. Um, Tony, with the, the spots you described, how are you thinking through that? Oh, man. I, I think that I think you just touched on something that we don't really acknowledge during the rut very much, but how much downtime you can have and how much like the second guessing can creep in. And I, I, I kind of think I feel a little different when I'm on public land somewhere, but if I'm on private land and I have confidence in my spots and I'm not, I'm not getting busted by does or blowing a lot of deer out, I tend to go the volume hunt route and just try to believe in it just until I've really sort of exhausted a spot. And so I, I did that, you know, where I was hunting the, f the first spot specifically in Wisconsin, I, I rode that out, I think an afternoon and all day and then, a, and then a morning. And it was just like, it's just not, 
this is just not happening here. I've got to go somewhere else. But I think there's a really fine line between just jumping around because you're like, oh, I haven't seen a big buck on this sit yet. And it's like, well, I don't know, man. You have days where you only see a couple scrappers. You have days where it's just slow and you have days where it just pops off. And if you're on a really, really good funnel, you want to be there that day it pops off. Even if the day before it was just a couple forkies and some does or something. And so I kind of think more and more now that just discipline kills deer during the rut. And and unless you've just been given a clear reason to go find that new sign, like I, I know that you were you were in that position where you're like, I, I feel like I have to go find them now. Sometimes you hit that and you just have to listen to it because it's the right call. But other times it's like that patience is, is what's going to kill that deer. Yeah. It's, it's like you said though, it's hard when you've got, you know, 12 hours of nothing happening and, and all the little voices whispering in your head, you, you think through every different possible option. At least I do. I think through everything, like the entire time I'm out there, I'm just thinking through, should I do this? Should I do this? What's this situation? What's this circumstance? What's this factor? And I just sit there like doing an algebra problem for 12 hours, trying to think through this and that and, and whatnot. And it definitely, uh, it can definitely just, you know, you can go in any direction. That's for sure. Um, Spencer, what about you when you were there in Montana? Were you, did you have that kind of tension between like, it kind of sounds like you did because you had a spot you liked and then you were going in blind though the next morning because you didn't see stuff that night before and you were a little worried about the morning hunts. Um, were you just riding a couple of spots you believed in or did you have that temptation too? Yeah, it, it, what, what made less of that for me in my situation was that I had no history with this property. Um, like I, I had scouted a little bit in October, but I didn't have like, um, some historical perspective of like, man, like November 4th, this is the best spot you can be on the property, um, or, or anything like that. So I, I was, you know, going a little bit off of what I had thought I had learned in October and what I had thought I had learned through aerial. Um, but also when you're hunting with a rifle, it, it feels like, um, you're not selecting like, uh, a, a specific trail to hunt. Like you guys have to sort of make those decisions. I'm selecting like a, a region of the property. Um, so th- there's certainly like a lot less of that, that comes into play when I'm holding the gun and, and you guys have bows. Yeah, that's a good point. So then what about you with that day, day three, you said day two, the scrape setting kind of set you up for success the next day. How'd that, how'd that pan out? Yeah. So, so day three, um, and I had sort of like made the decision that morning about exactly where I was going to sit. And it, it was just sort of like triangulating, uh, a spot on Onyx where like, okay, 200 yards from this spot in the timber, I've seen this buck exit multiple times in October and 50 yards from this spot, there is a cluster of scrapes, which I would say as good a chance as any that are his. And then 50 yards from that, there is a water crossing that probably most of the deer in this little herd are using. And so using sort of those like three things, I had picked a spot on Onyx that it looked like there was going to be a little lane of visibility for me in there, um, which again is something I'm really concerned about when I have a rifle. And, and that was where I wound up at. And I had even told the cameraman, like, when the sun, like when it was starting to get some light, I was like, dude, I have no idea if this is where I want to be. Like I might change my mind, um, you know, as soon as like five minutes into shooting light, because I think we should be 50 yards over or I can get better visibility if we're looking at it from the other angle instead of over here. Um, but we ended up staying there 
and it really felt like a turkey hunt. I was sitting on the ground with my back up against a tree. Um, I had my face mask pulled off because I'm like, I, I don't know where the deer are going to funnel through here. There's like nothing that would really like cause an obstruction for them to move through the timber in a specific way. Um, so I was, I was just guessing. And about 20 minutes into shooting light, I see the first doe and she's just in like a perfect spot. She's like 120 yards away. Um, and I was like, oh, I nailed it. This, this is great. If all the deer can do this and there happens to be a shooter with, that's exactly where I'd want them. And after that doe comes through, then another doe at like 160 yards and another doe at like 80 yards. And then I started to see some of that randomness of like, yeah, there, there's nothing to funnel the movement in here. And all of a sudden I had does everywhere from like 60 yards out to 160 yards. And as that's kind of happening to my left, I catch movement behind the cameraman. Again, we're sitting on the ground and I look over and I'm like, I, I'm whispering to the cameraman. I'm like, Hey, like chill out. Um, there's a, something right behind you. I can't tell what it is, but it's like looking at us. And, uh, so this, this goes on for a few minutes and it was close enough that I, it, it didn't had its head like alert towards us, but I couldn't bring up my binos. I couldn't tell what it was because the backdrop was just like some really crowded timber, um, and, and branches and stuff. And so it ended up being the buck, but I had no idea when it was looking at us from 30 yards that it was the buck, um, that I was after. And so finally, the buck kind of chills out after I don't move, the cameraman doesn't move and I'm able to pull my binos and uh, I'm like, oh, that's, this is a shooter. This is a shooter. And uh, the cameraman did his best to like swing the camera around and I'm like, can I shoot? Can I shoot? Can I shoot? I haven't seen the footage yet, but I bet I asked him like six times um, if, if I can shoot. And uh, <laughs> if, even if he hadn't said yes, going into the seventh, I probably would have shot. Cause it, it felt like the seconds were ticking away. This thing had already been like a two or three minute encounter and it had locked onto us and it was aware of us a little bit. And it had just like given us enough of a window where I could pull my binos and, and move my rifle over. And, uh, he gave me the green light to shoot and I shot. And at that point it was just like, uh, an explosion of white tails in the timber. Like there were deer there in other spots that I didn't realize at the moment. Plus I had like those seven does that I'd watched funnel through and in the perfect spot. Um, and he only ran about, I don't know, probably 80 yards and died, but it was, uh, it, it was not ideal. Like 30 yards is like, Oh, great. Like I, I picked the perfect spot, but it, it was far from the perfect spot. I would love for those deer to be like at a hundred yards. That's just as easy of a shot as 30 yards with a rifle, even if they were like 150 yards and I didn't have my like scope dialed to the ideal spot. If, if I had known that I was going to shoot something, at 30 yards, that's not like a shot that you practice either. Like when I go out to the range and I'm, I'm prepping for a hunt, I'll start at like 200 and then I go out to three and then four and then five and then back down to 200. No one has ever like gone out and given themselves a scenario like, all right, it's a morning hunt and it's a half hour into the sit and uh, there's the buck at 30 yards. What do you do? And, and so the shot was just fine and it was a clean kill through his lungs. Um, but there was um, some anxiety before the shot and after the shot, like, did that work out? I, I don't know. I've never fired my rifle at something at 30 yards before. Um, but it was just like finding that scrape and that water crossing. Like I said, any idiot can go out and identify where deer are crossing a, a stream or a Creek or whatever. And then knowing where they were coming out of the timber that put me in that spot, um, which ended up being just 30 yards from where that buck wanted to be. I mean, I'll tell you what, you should have grew up 
deer hunting with a gun in northern Michigan. We are lucky. Like, 30 <laughs> yards is a long shot for us out there. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, I really got some range on this one. <laughs> yeah. Thick, thick stuff. You know what I'm talking about, Tony. Big time, man. Yeah. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So that's awesome. So day three, you killed that buck. The scouting ended up helping you out. Um, other than those two things you identified, the scrape and the creek crossing, was there anything else about that region, that spot that you think, you know, led to him being there? Like if you had to sit and try to like analyze, okay, why was this the right spot? Is there anything else that you didn't mention to color that more? Yeah. I mean, I knew like where there was some unholy thick timber and brush at the very back of the property where I would, I would guess like, okay, they're, they're probably betting there. That would be a, a very, if I were a whitetail, that's where I'd want to bet. And I'd seen where they were exiting to feed. And so it was just like picking some spot between those two areas. Um, and, and it was, like I said, the, the scrape in the water crossing that put me there. And, uh, you gave me hell for it like the day before and I was sending you pictures like, Hey, look at this cool petrified wood I found. <laughs> and, uh, it ended up being only like 50 yards from, uh, where I also found that scrape. So I was, I was very pleased that I took the scenic route through the woods that, uh, helped me find some petrified wood and a scrape and then put me there the next morning. Do you look at those fancy rocks as like a sign <laughs> to make you like when that happens and you're out walking in the woods, do you now tend to gravitate, gravitate to that kind of spot for deer? <laughs> No, not at all. It actually, it makes me a worse hunter. Like I'll, I'll pick a glassing spot where there's like some exposed gravel or something, or like, uh, 
I'll have my eyes on the ground and I'm like walking somewhere when they should be up looking for other stuff. So it, 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 uh, it makes me a worse hunter. I'm, I'm aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Tony, uh, I guess question number one is how do you feel about Spencer's rock hunting? And question number two is, uh, <laughs> question number two is, was there anything else of interest on day three for you worth covering? Listen, I, I love my, me and my little girls, we do a lot of agate hunting and a lot of shed hunting. So I get where Spencer's coming from. I just think there's a time and a place for it. And I think, <laughs> I think Spencer gets a little, uh, uh, he gets a little distracted once in a while when he's out there, but it's okay. I, I get why he's doing it. Uh, and as far as my day three, it was just a scrapper fest, man. It was, uh, it, it felt, you know, and I, I my buddy Adam was hunting the, the, the place with us too. So he was out in different spots on the same farm and we kind of just had this had similar experiences. It was if you saw a buck coming or you heard a grunt, you looked up and it was a little fork gear, a little six or a little, you know, eight point or whatever. And it just was like we're both kind of sitting there going, it just feels like it hasn't broke loose yet. Like even though I had already killed a great buck earlier in the week, it just we're just you know, like you're waiting for that time when it's like it shifts from just being scrappers running all over the countryside to deer of all ages. And by the third day, it had that had not happened for me down in Wisconsin. Yeah. So, so let me ask you this. I'm pulling this purely from anecdotal sources of like a sample size of like eight guys that were all hunting around Iowa where I was at. Um, leading into the week I started hunting and hunting during the week I was there. And the consensus was that there was a lot of rutting activity the week prior to November, like that last week of October, everyone was like, man, it was on fire. A couple of the people I know got shots and like that first day or two was pretty good. And then there was this, basically the, the majority of that first week was really slow, uh, at least around us, like multiple people, a bunch of different people, basically all the people I was talking to down there were all saying, man, it's dead slow. The only good bucks they were seeing were locked on does. And, and there was one, well, one day that I was driving from one property to another. And in that one drive of like a 15 minute drive from one spot to the next at midday, I saw three different big mature bucks locked on does in the middle of the day off the side of the road or back in a field, that kind of thing. And then two of my other friends that had already tagged out just spent a lot of time just driving around, putts around, looking for deer and just having fun. And they were seeing the same thing that first week, a lot of mature bucks locked on does, um, which I would think the first few days of November is not out of the question, of course, like that happens, but to see so many of them locked down felt like a weird earlier than usual kind of phenomena. Um, did you see or hear anything about that kind of thing happening between the two of you guys or, or anyone else you've talked to? I did for sure. I don't know about you, Spence, but I kind of think that that happens way more than we think you hear. I mean, a lot of times the last week of October is on fire and then it seems like there's just this little down period, then it kicks in again. But I think your experience, Mark, I think that was what we had going on to an extent. And I, I don't, you know, like this is totally speculation, but when you've got a ton of does around, the odds of one of them going into estrus are way higher, right? It's just a numbers game. And I kind of feel like the places I see that happen where you might get bucks that feel like they're really locked down earlier than you'd traditionally guess it, it, a lot of times it feels like that happens in places where you just have a ton of does to work with. And I, I don't know if that's what it is or not, but it sure felt that way for us in, in Wisconsin as well. Yeah. Spencer, did you get to talk to anyone? I, I haven't, I haven't heard radio at all last week cause I was gone the whole time. Did anybody else share any, any experience like that or have anyone else you talked to mention something along those lines? 
Mm, not not that specifically, um, nor did I happen to witness it in Montana or Wyoming either. But that also just feels like a very Midwest scenario that you're describing to like you're driving around and there like happened to be a, a cut cornfield and now there's like a big buck and a big doe bedded down out there. Um, I, I feel like that's uh, that's less likely to happen in my neck of the woods out here, and I, I don't feel like I saw that happening either but i also don't think i'm i'm in a lot of situations to witness that kind of thing yeah yeah i hear you okay so day four i'm trying to remember now what happened on day four with you guys spencer you were moving to wyoming and uh if i recall didn't start out well do you want to give me like the day four cliff notes on what on what happened here because it was it was kind of a transitionary period for you right yeah, so day day three I killed in the morning, so I was able to make the drive to Wyoming yet that night and be hunting on the morning on day four. Um, it, it started off tough. Um, I had hunted this area one other time last year in October, and I had came down to it again in this last September to hang a few trail cams. But other than that, I have I have no like history with this place. And so my assumed knowledge about things like, Oh, there's going to be cattle in this pasture and there's going to be horses over here. And this field is going to be corn and this one's going to be beans. And this one's going to be harvested because it's been so dry. I was wrong on so much of it. I, I had a ton wrong. And I, I even told the cameraman, I was like, uh, yeah, you know, we're going to learn a lot when the sun starts to come up here about like what's corn and where are their livestock at and stuff like that. And I happened to pick like a, a, really poor spot that first morning. And it felt like, uh, when they show it, there should be like Benny Hill music playing. Cause I ended up <laughs> in like a horse pasture with like every horse couldn't have been more curious about what I was or what I was doing. So they're all like walking up to me and like trying to figure it out. It looked like they're like solving a math problem, standing there looking at me. Uh, cause they weren't quite sure what I was or what I was doing there. There happened to be some deer around too. Uh, I wasn't terrible for deer movement, but I just, I don't want to be by horses is an extra thing to think about when I'm pulling the trigger. It's, uh, also like not ideal for deer movement. It's not like the deer are going to, you know, hate horses or something like that, but if they have the choice to, to move through, like the landscape in the pasture next door that doesn't have horses or the one that does have horses, they'll, they'll just pick the one that doesn't have horses. Um, and so day two in the morning wasn't great. Uh, that evening I, I had found a cut cornfield in the area, which I was, I was really concerned about. And I only saw a couple does that night. And that was when I had realized like, man, I, I really don't know Jack about this place. All the stuff that I thought anyway, I don't. Um, Cause I, I thought I was on like the best food source in the neighborhood with, you know, one of the best bedding areas nearby and just happened to see nothing. And I was trying to diagnose like what, what's going on here? Why, why am I not seeing as many deer as I think, um, which I, I learned more about on day five, I think on day five, I figured out why my hunting was so slow in that spot, but day four was not great. Okay. Tony, what about your situation? Uh, my day four was the last sit on that crossing that I just couldn't get it going on. And then I moved to the pond for, uh, at the bottom of the Valley for an afternoon sit and it was still more of the same. Uh, so I saw a lot of deer and I started to get to figure out how they were using the valley around that pond. Finally, when I, I got to go in there, but it was a scrapper fest once again. And, you know, it was it was slated to get hotter. And so you're sitting there thinking, OK, is that going to affect the situation at all? But 
you're sitting on water and it's going from, you know, November 4th to November 5th. And you just think at one of these times it's got to bust open. And so, you know, the fourth day was kind of a, kind of a wash for me. It was fun, but I didn't, you know, it wasn't that great, but the fifth day turned on for me in there in a, in a major way, but I didn't have, I didn't have much going on until that fourth day ended. Let me put it that way. And, and day five was the day for both you guys, right? I didn't kill on day five. I did. I did uh, well, but, on six. but it was a big day for you. It was a big day. Yeah. It was a big frustrating day. Yeah. And Spencer was day five or six. Your your next big excitement. Day five is when I killed. Okay, so let's let's go with you, Spencer. Fill us in on how you were able to figure out what the problem was on day five and how you fixed it, um, and then we'll let Tony write it out from there. Day five, I thought I identified what would be a good spot for my morning haunt in Wyoming. And I get there plenty early and I'm, I'm have a unique access where I'm crossing two pieces of private ground to get to a piece of public, both of which I had permission for. Um, <clears throat> and if you didn't have a way to come in via the private, it, it would be almost impossible to haunt otherwise. And I'm, I'm coming into where I want to be in the morning and there's a headlamp like 50 yards from where I have my on X pin dropped of, of where I'm headed to. And so I go over and, and I talked to the dude and it, it turned out we had both gotten permission from the same folks and had the, the same game plan. He had beat me there. So I moved out. But in talking to him, I had learned um, that he had permission as well as a handful of other guys. And he said that uh, the neighboring properties also get a bit of pressure this time of year. And where I was ignorant coming into this is that um, when I was in Wyoming in 2020 hunting in October, I was hunting in the middle of the week. Um, and I had talked to a handful of, of landowners. I, I at one point went like five for five getting permission to hunt. Like nobody would tell me no. And it was, it, it was amazing. But that generosity didn't end with me. It had turned out that they didn't really tell anybody no. And uh, so the difference being there during the middle of the week in October versus on a weekend in November made an enormous difference. So we had that guy where I wanted to be, I started to head to my plan B spot on my way over there. I see a ranger pulling up like, like a side by side. Um, so then I go to like a plan F and as I'm at plan F 20 minutes into the hunt, a, a different ranger comes driving by within a hundred yards of me. And, uh, like 20 minutes after that, a long ways away on a different property, I can hunt. I see a pickup driving across like a, a pasture and he stops and gets out and he rattles off six shots at some thing that I, I couldn't even see what it was he was shooting at, whether it was deer or coyote or whatever. Uh, but I had quickly learned that there were many, many folks that were sort of doing the same thing as me. And these places just do not hunt big enough for that sort of high impact pressure where guys are driving rangers around or uh, getting out of their pickups and, and rattling off shots like that. Um, and there's also like not that many mature bucks to go around, even if we all sort of had the the same idea to kill something three and a half years old or older. It just like wasn't going to happen. So day five, I didn't see a single deer, but I also encountered a ton of hunting pressure, um, which was sort of like the lowest point of, of my whole week so far. And so then coming off the morning on day five, I'm like, all right, I got to figure something else out. I need to go like knock on other doors or find some other public to haunt or whatever. And, uh, I probably put a hundred miles on my pickup that afternoon, driving basically the whole unit. My tag was good for looking at pieces of public and, and talking to different landowners and stuff like that. And I ended up getting three permissions off of about, I don't know, 10 or 12 doors I knocked on. 
Um, one person though wanted a, a trespass fee, which I, I wasn't real interested in. The other person, um, had said I was welcome to hunt, but they hadn't seen a deer there like all fall. And then, uh, the other person where I ended up deer hunting said that they would get somewhere between like 10 and 30 deer in their field a night. Um, and that I was, I was welcome to go out there. So that was when I settled in for night or for the, for the evening of night five, um, and it was sort of the same thing that I had experienced many times over. Like I, I go in there based on what I thought I knew about the place and on X and I sit down and I'm like, I have no idea if this is right. Like I, I might change my mind. I may be way, way off about where I'm sitting on this property. And the first deer that we see, I watched him come all the way from like 600 yards to crossing the fence in front of me at like 20 yards. So yet again, I was like far too close for a rifle for, for where I should be. Um, but that evening, there were some other does that fed out, I don't know, they were probably 700 yards away from me at the time. And all I could see were does at that point. But I thought that's where I should be anyway. If, if there's does there, maybe a buck's going to show up at last, last light. So we cut the distance from probably like 700 yards to, I don't know, about 200 yards to where I see all these does are at. And at that time, a buck comes rolling out into the field. And it was just like a, a perfectly ruddy scene where he is chasing these does all over hell and he gets on one doe and he he chases her to what happens to be within like 200 yards of me and he was so hot on her at the time that like uh, i couldn't tell what was really going on in this rack because he had like some sage hanging down and stuff because he was cutting through the the uh, vegetation so hard and i'm trying to stop him going meh 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 and i i probably do that like four times finally i whistle at him and uh do another like meh and at that point he stops at like 200 yards the the doe is gone and uh i shoot him and it ended up being a four by four um not very big probably like a two and a half or maybe a three and a half year old since there's not great nutrition here but i was stoked on it i felt like i solved a puzzle uh, i felt like i solved a, a puzzle um i had gained access a few hours prior and you know within an hour after that i was hanging the deer in the guy's shed. Um, and then that morning, like it, it felt like I wasn't even back at square one. I was at like square zero because of all this knowledge I thought I had, I, I didn't have. And all this access I thought I had, I, I didn't have to myself. Um, so to like figure that out in the afternoon and, and find a new place to hunt using on X and then like finding a place that I wanted to hunt on the property and, and closing the distance, uh, man, it felt good. It was like so satisfying. It's one of the smaller bucks that I've killed in, in a few years. Um, but damn it. I was, I was real stoked with how it happened. Yeah. I love the resiliency and the way you're able, able to pivot. I mean, that was, that was good stuff right there. Do, do you have any thoughts you can share on just your trick to talking to these landowners? I mean, how you approach them, how you, how you went about asking them for permission, anything you've learned because you've done this a bunch now. Um, what, what led to your success on that front? Cause that was kind of the key to this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to put myself in like high success scenarios, um, where if I'm going to knock on someone's door or like writing a letter, um, I'm not going for like usually the a plus property that probably already has like deer stands on it. And then they've been asked a hundred times and you can see that they've like manicured the property in a certain way for like hunting it or something like that. Those aren't the places I'm going after. I'm going after like, a B minus property, something that's like worth my time and probably still holds like some good deer. Um, but also these folks like don't really value it themselves because 
it's it's not so obvious like what the deer are doing or where the deer are at. They're not getting bugged all the time from neighbors to hunt it. Um, and then it also helps to be in a state like Wyoming, where a, a lot of the folks there, within 50 miles of where I killed my whitetail, you can be in like some world class elk hunting and bighorn sheep and and antelope and uh, giant mule deer and stuff like that. Whitetails become like such an afterthought, even for the the folks that live there and like hunting themselves. Um, it's almost like I'm asking permission to coyote hunt with some of these people. That's how like low they think of a, a whitetail. Um, so I, I think one of the the best things that I do though, is like I said, seeking out what I would identify as like a B minus property rather than only spending my time trying to get permission on something that's an A plus. Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially if you're trying to get last minute permission like this, like in season, that's such a hard mm-hmm. ask in a lot of places that yeah. Those overlooked spots. That's that's a really a really good idea. Um, well, well done, man. Nicely, uh, nicely pulled off spin move there at the end. Thank you, thank you. And so that was uh, that was my day five, and it happened in the evening. And then, uh, I mean, that was basically then the the main gist of your week. You filled your second tag, uh, showing us all how it's done, Tony. Tony, you were still going. Close us out here with the story of your two days of of chaos or whatever ended up being there in Wisconsin to close things out. How how did you how did you adjust on day five and what happened? Uh, well, on day five, I just about put rocks into my pockets and jumped into the Mississippi after the morning hunt. So I went back into that pond stand and had it it was supposed to get i think in the 50s that day so it was supposed to get pretty warm but it was clear from the sits in there that there were there were there was extra stuff going on there besides just the water there was a really good funnel that i could shoot to and i, I knew i mean i knew that was there i had a camera on it but there was also a, a knob on the hill above us that the does seemed to go in there and bed i i've never been in there i'm going to be this winter but a lot of the the action kind of it, it went to there and it originated from there, and so it was sort of like I felt like I was sitting below one of the best bedding areas, doe bedding areas on the property, kind of by accident. But anyway, the the fifth morning of the hunt starts out with a little scrapper comes down, gets a drink, goes back up the hill. I'm like perfect, you know, you didn't wind us anything, and then at like nine o'clock in the morning, like a hundred and fifty incher comes running down the hill. And I stand up, you know, get clipped on, my cameraman's scrambling, and that buck stops. He walks by at 15 yards. I can't shoot him yet because I'm waiting for the cameraman. And then he stops at the pond 21 yards below me. And this is a beautiful buck, like all of 150 inches. And so I'm just waiting. He's He's got to turn like a foot and a half, and I've got a 21-yard shot, wide open opportunity, and he drinks. And he walks into the pond. He drinks some more. And every deer to that point has gone there and then walked right back up through that shooting lane. So this buck starts to turn and I draw and he walks right below me in all this brush. So now he's like 10 yards away. I have no shot. So I let down. And instead of doing what every other deer did, this deer decides to go up along the dike where I can't shoot and he's walking out of my life. And so he ends up cutting through this brush at like 30 yards walking away. So I grab my grunt tube and I grunt at him and he stops and turns and then he's kind of thinking about it. And then he turns to walk away. I grunt again, turns around. This happens like, I think three times and he starts making a scrape 
and, and working his antlers in the tree. And I'm looking at him like, I got a perfect hole to his vitals. And so I range him and it's 34 yards. And so I, I dial into 34 and just get ready to draw. He turns, starts walking right at me. So I dial back down to 20. I'm like, this deer's toast. And he starts getting closer. And instead of going under this log across the trail, he cuts down into this brush. And so this buck is like, he's like bulletproof. Like every move he's made has kept him just like with enough stuff on his vitals. And now he's like maybe 20 yards away standing in the brush. And I've got a shot at every part of this deer, but his lungs. Like I could shoot him in the head. I could shoot him in the butt. Everywhere that you don't want to shoot a deer and he stands there, stands there, and finally moves a little bit, gets downwind of us, and takes off. And it was like, I don't know, I don't know if my camera guy was filming after that deer ran away or not. I threw a pity party. I was so bummed to have that deer. I I felt like it was like five minutes of having a hundred and fifty incher within you know thirty four yards of me. It ended up being a seven and a half minute encounter, wow. and I never killed that deer. And I spooked him out of there. He got, he winded us, and I was like. How, you know, I, I had already killed one in the 150s on Monday. I'm like, how, how long am I going to have to wait for I have another week where I get two really good opportunities at 150 inch bucks? And it was just a downer. So we set that out and I ended up, I, I had fully gone into this this project. I'm like, I'm going home with a bunch of meat. I got a bunch of doe tags. I got two buck tags. I got a fall turkey tag. And I hadn't had a really good opportunity at a doe yet. And I wanted to rest that pond spot because I knew uh, we were going to get progressively warmer. So I knew I was going to pull all day sits from there on out there because it was going to get into the 60s. And so my buddy had put in this clover plot and I was like, I, I'm going to go put a blind up on there. Just try to try to get a doe and, you know, maybe a doe will bring in a buck, you know. But I, I, I literally went into it thinking I'm going to maybe shoot a doe or call in a turkey that afternoon. And sitting there, you know, it's getting a little bit later and all of a sudden, I thought I heard a grunt. I'm like, oh, man, that sounded close. Six does run by the blind. And I look up, and here comes this nice three-and-a-half-year-old type eight-pointer. And he stops 29 yards, quartered away. And I'm on the ground. I'm like, oh, my God, he's toast. Well, my cameraman can't get on him because of the side of the blind. So I start panicking because I know this buck's going to chase those does. Like, he's, I had already stopped him once. And so I knew I had to let him walk, stop him when he got on film, and then try to shoot him. And by then my brain was sludge and that deer walked out. I stopped him. I guessed, I can't remember what I guessed now, 30, 30 something. And I, sh I stopped him wide open, <laughs> nothing between me and him, but air and opportunity. And I shot right over his back and he ran off. And I was like, I cannot believe I just blew that shot. No, nobody's fault, but my own. So like now I've had two amazing opportunities today after struggling for three days and that deer, he kind of, he got a little wiggy, obviously he left, those does stayed out there. And as it got later, you know, we, we run, you run out of camera light earlier than you run out of shooting light. And it was getting to that point where you're like, it's, it's pretty much time to call it, but there was a bunch of does out in front of us. And my camera starts kind of packing up and I'm like, dude, let's just, let's hang tight for a little bit. Let these deer clear out. I don't want to spook them. And I said, I think a big one's going to come out. And no sooner had I said that than I looked out and this monster body deer comes out and I bring out my binos and my first impression is 180. Like it's, it's one of the biggest bucks I've ever laid eyes on ever. And he starts chasing a doe and I'm looking at him and it's getting darker, but it's still legal shooting light. But 
I'm like, I have that like conundrum going on where you're like, okay, I got to film this project, but if that deer comes close enough, I really want to kill him. He ended up starting to chase a doe at me. And I don't know, I don't know if any of this footage turned out or not, but he got to 39 yards turn and stopped, turned around, ran away. And by the time that deer was out of my life, I had settled on a, like, I, th- I think he's 175 inches, just unbelievable. And so I was sitting there thinking, I legitimately had three amazing bucks within shooting range. And I'm going back to the cabin with no filled tags, nothing but like a whole lot of self-doubt and a whole lot of stupid moves. And it was just a wild, it was a wild day for me. Like I was, I was spent by the end of that day. When's the last time that either one of you missed a deer? Uh, I think I miss one every year. I don't know. Um, I hadn't missed one this year, but probably last year, two years ago. Yeah, I, I missed I missed uh, my target buck in Michigan last year. Tried to slip it through a hole that I shouldn't have. So we have a pattern, Tony. Yeah, <laughs> is what we're trying to say. I, I, I think yeah. I think we have Spencer giving us a little bit too much credit here. <laughs> but prior yeah, to yeah, prior to that, it had been a while. You, you're good for the rest of the season then. That means no uh no more missed encounters or uh or missed shots then for the rest yeah. of twenty twenty one, I think. That must be it. I like I like that. I like that. So Tony, you were spent, you were frustrated. So it sounds like coming out of that day, it wasn't like, Oh man, I'm right in the action. I had three close calls. This is gonna happen. It was probably more like, Oh man, I had three close calls and I couldn't capitalize. I suck. Was it that was that where you were at by the time day six rolled around? I was I was a little bit of both. I knew, you know, that big one I spooked in the morning, he wasn't coming back unless a, unless a doe brought him in. And then, you know, you miss one, you're like, I'm probably not going to have a chance at that deer again. And so I, I had a ton of confidence in that pond spot with the, the way it laid out and the way the, the weather was going to break for me. But you also sit there and you go, you know, you don't get that many days like that as a bow hunter. I mean, it's just, you know, when it, when it, when it breaks like that and you don't, you don't capitalize, you know, I mean, it might be years before something like that happens again. And so I had that in the back of my mind, but I was also like, I know I've got a couple days left. I'm going all day on that water and I'm going to hope those 60 degree temperatures bring a buck to me. All right. Bring us home then. D- give, give me a little bit more on why you were so confident with this water thing. Cause if people haven't been following you, Maybe they aren't as familiar with the water game at this time of year. Now, hopefully people have been listening to foundations. Hopefully people know this perspective, but just in case they don't, give us a little bit more detail on why this was something you were really willing to bet the rest of your trip on. Uh, you know, when you're when you're looking at November 6th, then it's going to be 62, 63 degrees. I mean, the ruts, the rut's going to happen. Like Those deer are going to chase. Uh, those does are going to get thirsty. The bucks are going to get thirsty. And I just felt like, you know, obviously we had we had somewhat of a limited water source. I think there was more water around than I originally thought, but it was it was a good tucked into the cover pond, which I love. And we just had a lot of good timber and a lot of good cover around it and really good winds and really good access. And so it's set up. It's it, honestly one of the coolest stands I've ever hung in my life. You, you sit there and you look around, and you're like, it could happen from anywhere here at any time. And so I knew, you know, pulling an all-day sit when by 
one or two o'clock in the afternoon, we were going to be bumping into kind of beach weather that, you know, there was a good chance somebody that I was interested in was going to come in. And I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, I went in there the, the, the next morning and parked, parked my truck in a spot where I was like, no deer's ever going to know you're here. And I got out of my truck, got my stuff ready, walking up the road with the cameraman, jumped a deer in the ditch. I heard it run away. And I was like, man, that did not sound like a little doe. Got a little farther in, jumped that deer again. And I'm like, well, there, there's one deer we'll never see. And climbed into the stand. Even before it was first light, I could hear a buck chasing and grunting. And then as soon as it got light out, I looked up on the hill. Here comes this great buck walking down. I thought it was the eight-pointer I missed the night before. But when I actually saw the footage, it was a different buck. It was a 10-pointer. And he came in and stopped at 33 yards. And I tried to call him down the hill because he looked like he wasn't going to come down the hill. I didn't know he was that close until he sat there for a long time. And then I ranged him. I'm like, I just need to shoot him now. But I was already pinned down. And it was it was not my finest moment. But that deer ended up walking off and coming into water in a different way. But I mean, it, we started the morning right away covered in action. And then it was little bucks and started getting hotter. And we had a, a, a weird situation there where right away, early morning was good, which you'd expect. Saw one buck chase up on the hill and then it got, it died for a couple hours and had a random doe and a fawn come into water. And then at like noon, when, you know, you'd kind of think like, this is not going to happen. I'd never killed a buck in the midday of my life. Like I've killed them up until about maybe 11 in the morning and then maybe starting at like two in the afternoon. But I'm like, I've never killed that lunch shift buck. And, but we started seeing deer movement around us and had some fawns, lone fawns come in and drink at like 1230. I looked up on the hill and way up toward that bedding knob, as far as I could see in the woods, I saw a nice buck cruising. And I said, if that deer comes down and gives me a shot, I'm going to shoot that deer. And he ended up working his way all the way down and going, instead of going to water where I thought he was, he saw those fawns and switched and ended up, I just stopped him just before he got out of my life and ended up getting a shot in him. And uh, it worked out and that was one o'clock in the afternoon. So the, the confidence in that spot paid off. It just took a lot. It took a while. So, so what's the takeaway there? When you when you look back at that hunt, was it what was the key? Do you think was it that you just had the faith and stuck it out all day? Was it something else? Well, I mean, it's partially that, but it's partially just giving yourself as much to work with as possible. You know, you think about we kind of distill the rut hunting down into like get on a funnel and it's going to be amazing, or get downwind of that doe bedding area and it's going to be amazing. And I look at it and go, sure, like that's a good starting point. But what if you have a funnel? next to water within, you know, seeing distance, hearing distance of the best bedding area on the property. What if you start building those things in there? It's easier to sit when you believe like there's multiple reasons for a deer to come here, you know, and a lot, and a lot of times we do, you know, the destination food source thing or the bedding area thing. And those are good. But if you can tack a few more things that are working on in your favor, like that, that spot, I killed that Minnesota buck. If that was just one waterway going through, that'd be a good spot during the rut. But because it splits and it and it attaches that property to other properties we can't hunt and other places where, you know, people are they're, they're trying to kill big bucks and like it's feeding that one little hub that you're sitting in. Now you've just increased your odds instead of just maybe they'll come from this way. Maybe they'll come from that way. Now you're like, well, or they could come from down there or they could come from behind me. And this pond was like that. Like it had 
it had all of those things going for it as far as terrain. It had water and it had bedding and it was all lumped into one spot. And when you know that and you believe that, it's so much easier to put in those hours because it's just like somebody's coming. Yep. Yeah, I, I love those spots where you can stack, where you stack all the different features and all the other attractive points and, and you get those those Venn diagram spots where they all meet. And and yeah, skyrockets your confidence, makes it, it makes such a difference, just the, the mental side of things. Um, Big time. Spencer, what about you? When you look back at your success and your rut, uh, what were your big takeaways? Was there anything that stood out for you that you're going to take with you from here into next year and you're always going to keep in your back pocket as a lesson or something you can point to? Yeah, I think uh, the big thing, like both of my successes happened on private property where I was a total stranger to the landowner and, and either like wrote them a letter or went and knocked on their door and talked to him and, and ended up getting permission. Um, and it's just like a thing that's so much easier said than done though. There's this sort of thing that's happening right now with Gen Z that they've they've made sexy over the last couple of years where they uh, do like rejection therapy, where they put themselves through something that is like a really uncomfortable situation where they're most likely going to get told no. And they do it like every day. And then it makes the more mundane things seem a lot easier. So an example might be like they would go into a. Uh, a grocery store and they ask somebody if they can speak over the intercom or something like that. Of course they're going to get told no, but if you do that or, or some variation of that uh, a lot, then it makes the more mundane things like um, asking for a day off at work or asking someone you're attracted to, if they want to get a drink, it makes that kind of thing seem way easier. Right. And, and so it used to take like every bit of courage I had to go ask a landowner for hunting permission in college. I'd like have to psych myself out to just go knock on a couple doors. And then I would, I would get told no. Now at this point I've, I've done it hundreds of times over and I've, I've learned just like this real simple thing that the worst thing that's going to happen is I get told no. And, and that's not a big deal. Um, so I've, I've just gotten used to like getting rejection through asking landowners for hunting permission, but it makes it so much easier. So if someone who's like not stoked on the properties they have access to or, or thrilled about, you know, the public land in their area. And, and of course, this is a thing that's easier said than done in a place where whitetails are an afterthought in the West where I'm at. Um, it, it's probably isn't going to have the same success in a state like Michigan or Indiana. Um, but like, just, just go seek out permissions, like write some letters, knock on doors, the worst thing that's going to happen is no. And, and the more you do it, the easier it's going to get to the point where I have an unreasonable confidence that I can roll into a state like Wyoming and, and find some permission at 2 PM and then kill a deer at uh, 5 PM. Yeah. I love that. I just have to disagree with one thing. I, I always used to agree with you. And I used to say the same thing <laughs> that, that the worst thing that can happen is that you'll get a no. That was always, oh. that was always the line I told myself. Worst thing that can happen uh -huh. is that it'll stay a no. Cause it's already a no to start with. Right. Uh, but that all changed this year when I knocked on a door for permission and got the caught, the cops called on me. So, you know, it could be Whoa. a little bit worse. <laughs> Man. Yeah. That's, that's an extreme I haven't uh, experienced quite yet. Yeah. That'll, that'll be a podcast for a future episode down the road. And that was, that wasn't, it's just technically a little different cause I wasn't asking for hunting permission. I was asking for tracking permission. Uh, so slightly different, although seemingly a smaller request. Um, so got to love those suburbs of Washington, D.C. Um, different kind of yeah. different. Point, kind I of think thing. point still remains just like put yourself out there. Um, I, I think you'll be surprised at how many folks 
just like don't get asked for hunting permission yeah. on their property. And, and you may be not the first, but the first person in a couple of years. And uh, there's, there's some amount of charisma you had that the last four people had asked didn't. And now you got a new 500 acre spot to hunt. And it, it'll be like a thing that you, you know, may have a relationship now for the next decade and a, and a new place to go look for whitetails. Yeah, totally, totally worth taking the shot for sure. Uh, well, guys, I appreciate you taking the time to recap this, to share, you know, your thoughts and your lessons learned. And I'm glad you guys did well. You carried the show. Thank you for getting four kills for our week in November. Uh, Clay managed one there at the end that I'm sure we'll get to discuss at some point. And, uh, you know, your, your friendly host of the Wired Hunt podcast here, I blanked. So uh, <laughs> glad you guys supported me and carried me through. Uh, any last thoughts? Any last things you want to make sure people look for? Make sure to check out the Meat Eater YouTube channel, folks. It should be out this week. Uh, it's either out today or it was out a couple days ago. There's I'm a little confused about when it's launching, <laughs> but it's going to be out there this week some point. Uh, the, the first episode of the show will be November 16th. And then uh, because we hunted for seven days, there's seven episodes. So seven weeks of content every Tuesday, these are going to be coming out. And uh, by 2022, the series should be wrapped. I'm glad you know what's going on. I thought it was coming out Thursday. So <laughs> either way, by the time uh, this episode drops, the show will be available. Yeah. That's all that matters. Well, it's going to be good stuff, guys. I've seen the first episode. It's strong. It's fun. And uh, I think people are going to enjoy it. So thank you, Tony. Thank you, Spencer. And let's put a bow on this one. All right. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Appreciate you joining on this one. Like Spencer said, be sure to check out episode one of One Week in November on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Hope you enjoy it. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.